Welcome to episode number two, with my guest today, Nick Tustin. Nick runs the company We Parent. They have a team of psychologists who've developed a way to teach children and their parents healthy ways to deal with tough and challenging events in their lives. We talked about bullying, sibling rivalry, depression, and a whole host of other things. A lot of it's in relation to mental health. And he's got some great views and some eye-opening ideas. He's trying to make a positive difference, and you can see the passion come through. Anyway, let's hear what he's got to say. Nick Tustin. All right, Nick, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So mental health is obviously quite a big problem. Most of us would know somebody with who's had problems with depression or a similar sort of related Absolutely. mental illness. Absolutely. Yeah, I often find myself saying everyone has a story and it seems that everyone I talk to, as soon as I tell them what I do, they just open up and they want to tell me their story. So I totally agree with you. If you could just help us out with maybe defining a little bit better what mental health is. Sure. We all have mental health in that we all have physical health. Historically, we've talked a lot about mental illness. And today, you may or may not have a physical illness. You may or may not have a mental illness. But that doesn't mean you don't have mental health. And I think we've made huge progress, probably in just the last three years, to understand that we all have mental well-being or mental health. So mental health, positive and negative, absolutely, needs to be addressed. Absolutely, and it should be thought about, in my mind, exactly the same as physical health. You know, to say that someone doesn't have physical health, that's not a thing. Sure. How long have you been interested or concerned with the, the state of mental health? So I've been involved with mental health in, in a way all my life. My father's a clinical psychologist, and um, so that's always been in the background in my life. In terms of my professional life. My father and I opened a clinical psychology practice 13 years ago. And whilst I'm not a trained psychologist myself, that was a juncture where mental health became very much a part of my career. I've managed the practice alongside him for that time. And over time, I guess, mental health has become more and more important to me. So what was it like growing up with your father as a psychiatrist? Sorry, psychologist. No, that's fine. Um, And look, and a lot of people probably don't know the difference between psychologists and psychiatrists. The easy answer and the one that I had in my head as a child is psychologists don't give out medication. They base it on speech therapy alone. That's not that they don't believe in medication, but it's not up to them to prescribe it. So growing up with a psychologist in the family, my father worked when I was young, in a very, very hard-end environment. He's worked in the prisons at one point and decided that he didn't want to carry on working in the prisons when he had a young family. And he went to work in a residential care home for people with chronic mental illness and you know, conditions such as Down syndrome or people recovering from serious brain injuries after car accidents and the likes. So um, I actually used to play football on the soccer pitch in his uh, work. It was directly across the road from my high school. So we used to, this is a residential facility, we used to get the residents out to watch uh, our practice and our games. So to me, a lot of them had really complex problems, but my relationship with them when I was young was they just loved soccer. That's an experience most people won't get in their childhood. Your father, has he developed a lot of the principles that you're working with at the moment? Absolutely, yeah. So he's our head of psychology 
and we have a team of psychologists but I liaise directly with him and the work that we present at We Parent is a culmination of his research but also his clinical experience across a huge range of different roles within mental health. So yeah let's talk a little bit about We Parent then. Absolutely. So how long ago did it start? So the idea for We Parent and the conversations about it started around about two and a half years ago. We talked about the things that my father and and our colleagues had learned from therapy and the therapy that that we do is is very much people with poor mental health or a diagnosed mental illness and I think with anyone in any form of medical profession they are fascinated by what could be done to prevent the problems that they spend their days solving. Mm. So there's always an undertone in my dad's mind about what could be done to prevent some of the mental illness and mental poor health that he was seeing. We Parent, the reason it's, it's called We Parent as opposed to anything else, is focusing on the role that parents play in building positive mental health in their children. As we were saying, we all have mental health, but what do we do to improve it? We all have a reasonably good idea what we would do to improve our physical health, but we discovered that most parents, whilst they were worried about mental health or motivated to improve their children's mental health, they really didn't have any tools. So We Parent is designed to give parents tools to build positive mental health um, and help where poor mental health starts within their children. Yeah. So you have on your website that We Parent is a guide to the mid-childhood years. I really like the way that you're sort of tackling the prevention side rather than the treatment side. Absolutely. This is a big passion of ours and In the future, when we talk about children's health, it will be both physical and mental. And we will talk about the three most important things in children's health being nutrition, exercise and building positive mental health. It feels now that when we talk about giving our children the right start in life and building them up to have a healthy lifestyle, we are only talking about physical health, which to us is half of the, the issue. Yeah. So you th- how many years do you think it'll take until there's that switch in, in sort of people's mindset or in schools? Mindsets are changing very quickly at the moment and I'm constantly impressed by how certain aspects of the media deal with mental health. I think they've made the shift from talking mental illness to talking mental health incredibly well and a lot of the media which I follow, I dedicate a huge amount of time now to mental health I think we are starting to have a bit of a realisation that mental health is very important. What I think we haven't really learned yet is how young it starts and how much we can do with our young children to build a a kind of mental fitness, if you will, that helps them deal with problems which are inevitable in their life. I mean, we are all going to face the death of a relative. We are all going to come in contact with things which make us sad, angry, upset, frightened. The real trick to preventing mental health conditions like anxiety and depression is giving our children appropriate coping mechanisms that they can use when they do experience these everyday emotions. Yeah. If somebody has good mental health, is a condition like post-traumatic stress disorder predominantly avoidable or could it be avoidable? PTSD is a complicated one. 
it could be a situation where it's less of an effect on you. We, we typically associate PTSD with incredible traumas. And, you know, we mm. talk about returning veterans and these sorts of things. The level of trauma that they experience in there, would positive mental health, it could mitigate it. Could it completely cancel it out? That's difficult to, to go quite that far. But... A step in the right direction. It is definitely a step in the right direction. It, it can't help. And I guess the analogy is we may struggle to prove that tip-top physical health gives you a better chance of surviving a condition such as cancer or coming through a heart operation, but it certainly doesn't do you any harm. So what you were getting at before then was dealing with the death of a relative, for example. Yep, absolutely. That sort of trauma would... Yep be something that you can cope with something that you can get through because you when we talk about an, an inevitable situation in many children's life is the death of a grandparent so this is going to happen to a child at some point yeah. and then when we talk to parents they know they need to help them through it but they don't have tools to help them through it they don't understand how to approach their child they've never been taught this this isn't something that we've talked about before in mm. fact in a lot of circumstances we have been conditioned to do the opposite and to shut children's emotions down we tell don't don't be sad um there's a concept called emotional contagion where basically people's emotions are catching so if you're sad i feel sad if you're happy i feel happy and because of this and not wanting to upset other people we as parents can have a, a bit of a tendency to tell children not to express their emotions. If you think about a child who is struggling to understand that their grandfather or grandmother has passed away, the most important thing is that you let that child experience their emotions and give them a way of coping with it. They, they will be upset. That is natural. That is normal. We must let them be and let them experience it. And we must guide them through it and let them know that what they're experiencing is normal and help them maintain a connection with that loved one. At what age do you think it's suitable to start talking to them about this? Is it as soon as they're able to speak? The most formative years in mental health are between the age of four and eight. And there's a little bit of science in this. The brain develops... Um, very quickly at that point and it forms pathways and these pathways become our habits our patterns and they actually form physical neuro pathways within your brain up until the age of eight when the brain is developing quickly those pathways can change almost overnight and with very little effort um, which is why children seem to like one thing one day and a different thing the next and and once children turn reach the age of around nine those pathways appear to solidify, which means that changing a child's mind, if we flip to teenagers for a moment there, I think we all understand yeah. that teenagers can be very set in their ways. And that's, I guess, the brain science behind the expression set in their ways. When it comes to how we cope with things, if we've developed positive coping skills before the age of eight, and this is why we focus on the mid-childhood years, which is the ages of four to eight, if we've developed positive coping skills by the age of eight, they will set and they will stay put and they will give you the very best chance of having positive mental health and a positive way of coping with whatever life throws at you. What do you see as like a, 
as a parent's role in the years from four to eight then? So um, Don, our head psychologist, is completely of the belief that the number one responsibility of a parent between the ages of four and eight is the emotional development of their children. Up until age three, as a parent myself, you find yourself thinking, I need to keep them warm, fed, clean, Mm. and stimulated. And there's not a whole lot you can do wrong psychologically um, in those early stages. As long as you love your children and keep them, you know, as I said, warm, happy, and, and healthy... That's why we focus on this age. So from the age of four, children are experiencing their emotions. And these emotions are new and they are powerful. Envy, jealousy, anger, they come along for the first time. And and children need to learn appropriate ways to deal with it. And I think as a parent, you're faced with a decision. Do I try and... And it sounds crazy even as as I say it. Do I try and suppress these emotions and tell them don't get angry, don't be sad, don't be upset? Or do I do what I do in every other aspect of parenting and educate my my child on what to do in those situations? And in a way, that's we parent in a nutshell. It's about accepting that anger, as an example, is natural, it's normal. Something will make you angry this week, if not today. But you need to know how to display that anger in an appropriate way and kids between the age of four and eight they struggle on that and if they learn good habits at that age they'll last them a lifetime sadly if they learn bad habits they will also last them a lifetime Mm. you've got a lot of different categories on your on the we parent website do you think that when the children and the parents are working through this together that the parents will be learning quite a lot as well because i've noticed myself that a lot of adults may not have the best coping mechanisms when it comes to things like jealousy and envy, like you mentioned earlier. Yes, and it's been a real journey for all of us, uh, putting the site together and putting the content together. And I've learned a lot as an adult, um, as well as learning a lot as a person. I think some of our psychology is very relevant for an adult as well. And if you display your anger in an inappropriate way, then you shouldn't expect your child to display their anger in appropriate way. And it's been a real challenge because no parents set out to be bad at it. So we don't want parents to feel like they're judged. We just want to give them tools to be better. And sometimes we do ask parents to change. And I think the most rewarding and positive, and it fills me with hope to think that as a parent, if I change my approach my child will change their approach as well because my approach is completely within my control. If I change what I do in a situation, if I handle something differently, then I'm setting a different example and kids learn quickly and that's the point of of getting in before the age of eight. If you do something differently three or four times, your child will change and they will adopt that. But you do need to be consistent because if you go back to your old ways three or four times, the child will quite happily adopt that approach as well. When you've been speaking with the parents, what's been the most rewarding aspect? Which category uh, have you enjoyed working with the most? I think the one that stands out for me the most and the feedback we've had, which has meant the most to me, is anxiety. And we've been quite overwhelmed by how many parents have got in touch and have really understood their child's behaviour and 
some of the feedback that I've had from parents, which has been amazing and I would love to share, is that they've stopped seeing their children's behaviour as naughty and they've started seeing it as an emotional reaction and that they are anxious in a situation. And a lot of parents have said to us they didn't even know that young kids could feel so anxious. And that's been really rewarding. What are some of the mechanisms that you can teach on your website that, that's proven to reduce the anxiety in some of the children? Focusing on childhood anxiety, often we are projecting into situations that children will be afraid or we're trying to deny them the feeling. And I think what was probably stood out to me the most is whatever you are feeling or I am feeling or a six-year-old child is feeling is their world. I think a lot of people get frustrated because anxiety comes up at certain times. Perhaps you're trying to get out the door in the morning. You feel like your child is slowing you down. And, and so you try and dismiss that feeling. Mm. You, you tell them things like, don't be silly. You know, they, we react because we view it as misbehavior. And I guess understanding that that anxiety for a child, whether it's around school or around crossing the road is very very real to them Mm. one of the other categories on your website that i found really interesting is bullying yes now i would not know really what advice to give a child if they came home to me and said i've been bullied today at school how should a parent approach that situation and could you share some advice that you'd give them yeah definitely i think as a parent we know that past generations approach to bullying is not correct and it's not mm. the right thing to do anymore go down and punch him on the nose yeah many of us probably probably and that's potentially how we want to react ourselves because someone has put upon our child so our approach to bullying is in three different strategies and if we can just sort of talk through those because we believe yeah. that bullying is preventable before i do that i, I just want to say one thing we do not in any way blame the victim absolutely not what we look to do is empower people everyone to understand that bully is a hazard there let's just assume there is a bully in every class at school Mm -hmm. now focus has always been on improving that bully's behavior i absolutely support that but there has been very little focus on what young children can do to make sure that they are not targeted by it And I kind of correlate it to crossing the road. I accept the fact that somebody will drive down my street today way too fast. Now, they should be given a ticket or have their license taken away or whatever. But that doesn't mean I will not teach my child to look left and right and to take appropriate safety action when they see someone breaking the rules. And I think because of the emotion around bullying, we have neglected to teach our children those basic safety skills when they are faced with a bully. So how how does it work? If you ask a child under eight what bullying is, they will not be able to tell you. They will not know what is right and what is... That's not fair. They will know what's right and what is wrong, but they won't know the difference between bullying and something that upset them. So bullying, firstly, what is it? It's a sustained period of someone trying to either physically dominate you or emotionally dominate you and get power over you. So when we talk about bullying in terms of it's about somebody getting power over somebody else, you can 
stop somebody from having power over you by your own actions. And I'll give you an example. If, if I've bought my child a new bike and other kids in the school, they don't think it's a good bike and they tease my child about the bike, if my child loves that bike and has a strong understanding of who he is and that he can really be proud of it, the bullies don't have any power when they tease him about his bike. I've, I've taken away that power. And that's... But there is quite a strong sense of wanting to fit in with a group, especially when you're in school. Like me remembering back to my school days, if you were the outsider from the group, it could be quite a lonely place. Absolutely, absolutely. And I totally see where you're coming from. So, And that's why there's three um, prongs to our approach to bullying. First step, teach your child what bullying is. Second step, give them assertiveness skills. And the third step is to give them a positive sense of who they are. And giving a child a positive sense of who they are, or we call it a positive sense of self, empowers children to understand that they don't need that group if that group doesn't offer them what they want in life. If that group makes them feel bad, if that group upsets them, then these are not people who are going to be friends and there are other groups and this is something I think many people have been through bullying personally and that desperate need to fit into that group is, is giving a bully that power. When you take away that power from bullies, you often find out that they have their own reasons for wanting to do it. Maybe they want to fit into the group as well and this is their way of doing it. But actually meeting them with this combination of confidence and assertive approach and knowing clearly what bullying is and that bullying is not just a, a bit of childhood banter and stuff like this. I think we can be over-concerned about bullying as well. And So I'd like to stress bullying in our minds is, is sustained and it's repeated. Um, right. It's not one comment that maybe hurt your feelings because we are talking here about children under eight. They will say things which are inappropriate. And their, you know, their world views are not refined. They say things about people which you know, adults don't. And they will upset each other. And a large part of knowing what bullying is is helping your child to understand that child's motives and that they're learning as well. Um, and then having a good handle on when it's actually going too far and now this is drifting up into bullying. With regards to the mental effects from bullying... There's long-term effects. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, absolutely. So bullying is a key factor in... It, it has a huge amount of, of detrimental effect to us and it directly contributes to long-term anxiety and long-term um, depression. So our, our practice, we see a lot of people who are the victims of workplace bullying um, and the most common presentation is depression and anxiety. Now whether you treat the anxiety first or the bullying, it often makes no difference. It, uh, it's a direct contributor and I recently read that of children contacting CAMS around, which is a, sorry, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service right. around 60% of them cite bullying as a contributor to their poor mental health. Wow. Yeah, it's terrifying. So 60% of people with poor mental health were bullied as children. Is that yes? That backwards. I think to be accurate, sixty percent of people who contact the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service 
say that bullying is a contributing factor. Now, they may have poor mental health for other reasons. They may have um, some of the psychiatric conditions and they might be bullied about them. Right. Or they might be bullied and that has caused them to have poor mental health. So it's cause and effect. Wow, so it's a huge systemic problem in, in all schools then, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely. And at We Parent, do you think if every child in a particular school was to work through this, do you think bullying could be, I want to say eradicated, but maybe that's a bit too much? Uh, how much of a difference do you think it could make? Yeah, I think if... There are there are examples of schools who've got excellent anti-bullying programs and report almost no incidences of bullying at all. I think what's vital is that parents are included in this. Research shows that if schools lead any form of um, campaign which is supported by parents, it is infinitely more successful. If parents are working against things or are not included in things, then schools really struggle to change this behaviour. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yeah. The majority of a child's time is not spent at school. They need the yeah. parents to reinforce that. Yep. And while school environment is, is huge in our life, schools and parents working in tandem on issues such as bullying. Um, we welcome our work to be rolled out into schools, but the most important thing is that the parents are on board. And to take a approach as parents that it's the school's issue and the school should handle it we know that's not worked we've been doing that for the last 10 or 20 years and bullying is still a problem it's time for a coordinated approach between parents and schools another thing that's really interested me because i'm quite interested in how typical my upbringing was i have an older and a younger brother and we were good friends we were good friends throughout all of our childhood however we fought quite a lot so much so that my parents actually decided on which cars to buy to give sort of three compartments to split <laughs> us up on long journeys. Is this a is this a normal, healthy thing, or it, was there something that could have been done to to stop the I suppose the heavy sibling confrontations? Yeah, S- sibling rivalry is something we've all experienced, and as a parent, it is potentially one of the most difficult things that you will have to deal with, it seems constant. And I think the desire for your kids to just get along um, is probably something which gives parents a lot of sleepless nights. Um, We have a programme of modules, eight modules, which parents can work through. They can go through at their own pace. They can decide which of them are relevant, which are not. It includes topics such as envy, jealousy, um, positive sense of self again. Sibling rivalry can often there can be a parallel to bullying often one child is bullying another so the approach to um, having a positive sense of who you are and making you I guess taking the power of your brothers and sisters over individual children children often say but he made me he made me feel this way he made me feel that way Mm. and I'm completely sure that your siblings were trying to make you feel that way (laughs) And what we aim to do is to empower you so that you don't feel that way no matter how they behave to you. And a lot of that work can be done with both sides and both um, or all the children. Can we discuss some of the facts that you might have brought along? Can you give us any sort of numbers on how, uh, how detrimental poor mental health can be to, let's say, the economy, for example? 
Sure, sure. So the chief medical officer released a report reasonably recently and predicted the cost to the British economy being between 70 and 100 billion a year. Billion. Billion, yes. On top of that, there are further studies saying that in Britain alone, the cost of poor mental health and the effect it has on our academic achievement and earning potential could be as high in England alone as 105 billion per annum. Um, and why the why the massive difference there? I think there's different ways that things are recorded, but one of the things that sticks out to me is um, in any given year, 20% of adolescents are reported to be experiencing poor mental health or a diagnosed mental illness. And their academic achievement is on average 18 to 20% behind. Now, this can be of very reasons. It can be that um, due to bullying, they're not attending school. It can just be an inability for them to be in an environment where they can properly focus on their learning. If you're struggling with a condition like anxiety or depression, learning is much more difficult. And when we look at that effect that that has on our lifetime ability, it might be the difference between going to university or not. 20% on your academic results would make an enormous difference to most of us in terms of our attainment. I don't want to just talk about your sort of net lifetime income, but I think that's how they calculate those statistics. Um, One of them actually talks about the effect on overall GDP of mental health. So it's an issue they, I think they cite four and a half percent of GDP, GDP, which is considerable, isn't that? Is insane considering less than 0.6 of a percent of the NHS budget is spent on child's mental health. Less than 0.6 percent, is that right? Point six, less than 0.6 percent. And this was highlighted by Norman Lamb, former health minister, quite recently in a, I thought, very brave call for funding to be channeled into children's mental health from as young as the age of three. Wow. Do you think that this problem has been going on for quite a long time, uh, that children's mental health has been ignored for decades maybe? Uh, I hear statistics like, is it one in ten people last year took antidepressants? Correct me if I'm wrong with that sort of statistic. I I don't have those numbers to hand, but that wouldn't surprise me at all. To answer your first question, has it been ignored? I, I think it's always been ignored. I think mental health in society has... No one has... We don't look back to a golden age where mental health was much better. Um, I think there's two reasons that it seems such a problem at the moment. One, it is becoming easier to report mental health. It's a little bit easier now to report mental health. So um, people do come forward and say, you know, I I have poor mental health and I need some help. Whereas maybe a generation ago, they just simply would have not said that they wouldn't have gone to their doctor um, and they would have been told to just toughen up and you know cop it and these sorts of things and if you look at so I think that's one of the reasons I think it's much easier to report but I think the incidence is also on the rise right a bit of a mixture there and you often find that with statistics you know you talk about crime statistics and these sorts of things you've got to kind of understand it it's reporting things 
it's, it's easier to report that does cause a, a balloon in the statistics. Um, but you've got to get to the true picture. You've got to understand exactly what's going on and then you can contend with that. So there's some other factors that I sometimes read about related to mental health. Uh, there's sleep, exercise and social media. Now, let's take sleep and exercise first. How much of a, an impact does that have on people's mental health? Look, there's a lot of research around both sleep and exercise. And having plenty of sleep is definitely good for your mental health. I suppose lack of sleep is not good for your mental health. Um, and exercise is, is a key part of any form of healthy lifestyle, whether it's mentally healthy or physical health. Um, my concern on that and, and people talking about sleep and exercise as being good for mental health is that when people face poor mental health or mental illness, um, we want to make sure that they know that that is sleep and exercise are key parts of a good treatment plan and they're no substitute for being under the care of a medical professional. Yeah, and social media. I see a lot of people uh, spending far too much time on social media comparing themselves to positive aspects of other people's lives. And that must have a detrimental effect on people's psychology. We believe so. It's probably a little early to sort of give a researched and qualified answer. But anecdotally, a lot of people report that social media makes them anxious um, and that they feel that they have to live up to certain standards. Um, bearing in mind the majority of our work is with four to eight-year-olds who obviously aren't on social media yet. Um, there's some really key things that parents can do at this early age to prepare their children for the inevitable journey into uh, social media. Um, one of our core strategies works around reducing social comparisons. And you referred to having a an older brother. Was it older brother? and One older, one younger. Yeah, yeah one older, one younger. You are inherently wanting to compare I'm stronger than you, I'm not as strong as you, I'm mm. faster than you, I'm not as fast as you. And I'm sure your eldest brother, who was probably bigger, strongest, fastest, quite liked comparing himself to you guys. Yes, who were, does. You know, thought of himself as being a little bit superior, maybe even in that way. Yeah. Um, it doesn't help children at all when parents compare them. And that's inevitable amongst children. They will quite quickly form those comparisons themselves what we try and encourage parents to avoid is, is using those comparisons from a parenting perspective you know why aren't you as good as your brother why have you not done this as well as your uh, brother your brother was good at maths these kind of things what is more important is that parents compare their child to a standard so if your child is six or if they're eight or if they're ten that they're reading their physical development their emotional development is appropriate for that level um, and that you help children understand what those levels are. Um, kids can handle it if they know they're a little bit behind and they can be encouraged to work a bit harder. The reason behind this is largely driven out of social media and that's sort of amplified the problem. If kids are used to trying to be the best at something um, or they only can judge themselves as how they rank with other people, when they go into social media, they're going to find that a really, really difficult place to take. Um, and this is where I think kids who are almost addicted to likes, shares, comments, these sorts of things, they're really not going to be able to compete with the celebrity culture and these sorts of people having highly filtered and you know, professionally managed social media accounts. And you end up in a situation where people are looking at an ideal self, which is unattainable. Um, and that 
ideal online self. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence now that is saying that the the disconnect between who I am online and who I have to present myself as online and who I really am inside is a key cause of anxiety um, and leads to depression in um, early teens and teenagers. If you haven't embedded that ability to be happy with who you are, that positive sense of self and that steered away from those social comparisons, when children go on social media, it's kind of the world of social comparisons. We see celebrity lifestyle, we see all these filtered and airbrushed photographs and kids are more and more and more living almost a double life, their real life and their online life. And I listened to a fascinating podcast recently where they were talking about young footballers and how they were getting great results with young footballers when they were all having to surrender their phones at the start of training. And these are in the academy systems. Um, And the catalyst for it was almost a throwaway comment that the players would rather text each other than talk. And this is in an environment where we're looking for leadership on the pitch and all of these skills. And and from there, I think they realised that these young football footballers were having um, almost dual lives. And in a way, they preferred their online life to their real life. It's crazy how much of a detrimental effect that, that social media can have then with respect to communication, with, it, with communication being such a vital part of, of life. Conversely, social media at times and when used in the right way is a great way to connect young kids experiencing the same things. It also gives them the ability to talk and open up a bit more anonymously. And so there are some great examples where kids are sharing things um, and feeling really empowered by doing so, um, where perhaps they wouldn't have been comfortable or confident to do that sat one-to-one in a therapist's office. Is that anonymity online necessarily a, a good thing? Because I think people find it much easier to be sat behind a keyboard to write hateful comments to people. I'm sure it's a problem in schools. Oh, yeah, um, that that contributes to cyberbullying, and that's a terrible thing, absolutely. But the ability to see hashtags where, you know, the black dog and these sorts of things where people are opening up and where it has its benefits, social media, is it's it's letting individual kids who are perhaps struggling with depression or anxiety who think they are the only one in the world that is different mm. see that, you know, countless celebrities are coming out now and talking about their battles with mental health and that it hasn't held them back from achieving some of these aspirational positions in the world and... I'm quite sure that as a you know as a teenager or a young child struggling with depression or anxiety, you probably flock to these kind of examples, and I hope they give kids great power. So, yes, there is a detrimental effect, I'm sure, of social media, but it has its positives as well. Sure. Yeah. But yes, keyboard warriors are awful. <laughs> keyboard warriors. Um, so I've been getting into meditation a little bit okay. recently. Do you see any sort of correlation between mental health or positive mental health and meditation? Have you looked into that much? Um, if by meditation we talk about mindfulness, yeah, mindfulness has always been a key part of uh, positive mental health. And 
taking the time and focusing on your actions and though the outcome that you produce um, is key. We have a mindfulness module All right. for our kids. It's it's in one of the strategies to do for dealing with um, anxiety to really focus on calming them down and it's a great way to cope with situations where things do make children frightened um, because some things in life they are just always going to be there and if we can approach them in a different way and approach them in a calmer and more mindful way then absolutely it's it's a key treatment it's also a very common therapy um, for a lot of um, anxiety and depression and so it's giving them that extra coping mechanism. Yep. It works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for everyone. Interesting. Is most of the content on your website aimed at neurotypical children? Or would the would the same advice be applicable to children maybe with autism? When we launched, we got contacted by a lot of parents with autism. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had this one a lot. It is aimed at neurotypical children because we felt that the need for this is across the board this is everyone's need now that doesn't exclude children with autism and they will have more difficulty processing their emotions because they have yet another set of challenges but it was important to us that we built the actual framework to say kids need to learn to cope with their emotions they need to learn to be mentally healthy um all kids and I think people still box it off a little bit and they still say to us if I have a problem I'll come to you and I guess our message is this is health and to come back to where we started this is mental health you all have mental health yeah and we all think our children should be fit and healthy and that needs to apply to both mental and physical if we have a condition that limits our ability to be fit and healthy whether it's physically or mentally then we need to do those basics even better so there is a lot of work which applies well to parents of autistic children it's not designed for autistic kids Um, it's designed for kids and it's designed for their emotional needs but autistic kids get angry they get upset they get frightened and a lot of our parents have come back to us and said that they work really well with autistic kids if you have a parent with a child that has maybe an undiagnosed uh, either autistic um, need or a uh, maybe a speech or language impairment, do you have a referral service or do you have any sort of uh, direction that you can point them in to get different advice or more specialised advice? Certainly. The, the GP is still the absolute centre of physical and mental health. And if you can't find what you're looking for then definitely the family doctor is the first port of call um we don't at the moment provide a a sort of list of experts etc um that's not our our place to keep that up updated um that's the gps have far better access to that through their uh, their central systems now i mentioned earlier that i really liked the way that we parent worked in the fact that it it concentrates mostly on the prevention rather than treatment. When I look at what the government might be doing, uh, from my point of view, it seems that they concentrate mainly on treatment rather than prevention. Uh, 
putting a plaster over a shard of glass in your foot rather than removing the shard of glass? Or is that doing them a bit of a disservice? Look, I'm, I'm not a political analyst in, in any way, shape or form, but we set up our business and we looked at the sort of state of play in the UK and we we felt, A, we couldn't go to the NHS for funding. We couldn't go to the government for funding. So we set it up such that it's funded by parents themselves because we thought, okay, it's important that parents have these tools um, we believe they're not getting them from anywhere. I think it's very difficult when you have a set amount of money and you have a a really, really obvious problem um, with chronic mental illness, eating disorders, self-harm, suicidal ideation, you know, these sorts of huge, you know, psychosis, bipolar, schizophrenia, these sorts of things where people are really, really suffering and they need intensive mental health support Mm. it's almost impossible for a government not to put their resources there and what that means is that that is very expensive because you've got to it very late um that has drained the pot completely and leaves almost no money for prevention or our other massive passion which is early intervention which is getting to things when they are not such a problem and i guess the metaphor i have in my mind is if you have an enormous fire and you say, and that is still burning and it is still raging, and the government comes out and says, we've just announced a smoke alarm program. <laughs> yeah. Everybody says, no, scrap prevention, there's a huge problem right now and that problem is burning. So I, I don't begrudge the government putting their money there. I wish they had more money to spend on the prevention. Um, there are incidences around the world where it's being done better, Um and I'm sure there are lots of places where it's being done worse. We parents doing such a great job. From my point of view, I can really see sort of the passion that that you guys have for all types of mental health issues. Where do you see yourselves going, sort of in the next year, five years? Yeah, it's well, it's a really exciting time for us. So, um, in the last two months, we've made the decision to uh, upgrade our service to an app, and this gives us the functionality to go on and deal with a much bigger range of challenges um, so our next focus is to up- upgrade to an app and build a system which will allow parents to monitor their children for anxiety and depression this will allow us to expand from the four to eight year old bracket um, and provide a service for parents who are worried about anxiety and depression in their kids up to the age of 16 um, how might they be monitoring their children? Sure. So we've developed a um, screen which parents can answer questions. It's 25 questions which are really based around the behaviour of your child. Um, it's a common screen that we use with face-to-face situations all the time, um, diagnostic tool. But we will build this into the app and allow parents to, if they have a life event um, or if they just are concerned and they want to tap in and find out whether their kids are starting to show early signs of anxiety or depression and they'll be able to do that on their phone. Now these diagnostic screens are not new, Um, you can find them online all over the place but where we're really innovating on this and I've done a a lot of the different ones to see what they're like, they all just tell you 
yes, you have depression, no, you don't have depression, or yes, your child has depression, or no, they don't have depression. And if the answer is yes, they do, it's just go to the doctor. Um, now, if you go to the doctor with mild or medium depression, um, it's a bit of a postcode lottery as to what you will get. And as we talked about, all the funding is going to the really tough end, and I don't see that changing. So we want to give parents a tool that will, if it returns results that they have mild or medium depression, then it will deliver them um, a 30-day program which they can help their child reduce the symptoms, reduce the strength of that depression. And the app will allow us this technology. It allows us to monitor your score, give you results, and then give you um, pretty much instant feedback as to how that's progressing. We think it will take um, the average parent between two and three hours a week. And we want to really walk them through those steps, giving them probably every second day a little task or two to complete with their child, which will really help get their child back on track. And will they get any FaceTime with a with a therapist or will they be able to speak to somebody to sort of voice their concerns? Yeah. So we are about to add a live chat facility to the site so they can contact we parent. It will help them if they can't find the right content, if they have a specific question, um, and let them, I guess, be directed by us a bit more. Still, the answer is going to be if they have severe anxiety or depression, contact their doctor and seek face-to-face help. We want to work alongside um, the, the traditional therapy model, but we want to give parents and, and their children access to the early intervention before their kids are severe enough. And a lot of parents do look at their, their kids' mental health and they are worried about their kids' mental health, but they perhaps think things aren't serious enough to make an appointment and go and see a, a child psychologist, or they don't have the resources. This is hard to get under the NHS, and we're talking £100 an hour often for these sessions, which is out of the reach of many, many families in the UK. Um, so we want to give this self-guided approach um, and let parents work through the basic steps. It's a real development for us. We're really, really excited about it. Great. And is that still aimed at four to eight-year-olds? This will allow us to extend this particular part of the business um, up to 16. Okay. I guess this is our first, where we've focused online in prevention. This is our first project where we're moving into management and monitoring of depression with and anxiety with a view to reducing symptoms we will all experience some low level of anxiety or depression in our life the purpose of this and the positive mental health which we've talked about is to allow those symptoms that feeling to reduce and not increase and as they start to increase we can head on to a a more serious level a higher level of depression or anxiety which does need that but parents can intervene at that point and they can help their kids get back on track if we give them the right tools to do so. Yeah, I suppose it could turn very quickly into a violent cycle if you weren't able to recover yourself to a, a, a baseline happiness. You could fall into other mental health problems pretty quickly. Absolutely, absolutely. And we are talking about health and we need to give 
people the tools to give positive mental health and positive physical health as well. And when you talk about it in those terms, you think if you noticed your child's health was starting to deteriorate, you would take action. You don't wait until your child is very, very, very poorly before you take them to the doctor. If they have a physical problem, you you know as a parent what you can manage and what you can when and when you need to go and get help. You know when you need to take your child to A and E, um, and you know when you can wait till tomorrow to go to the family doctor, and you know what you can deal with yourself. Um, we want to give parents that tool and really empower them and let them know that when it comes to anxiety and depression, it's far more common than we think. One in five children will experience anxiety and depression under the age of 18. Um, And we want to let parents know that it's not the end of the world. There is a lot that can be done about it. And we're here to, uh, to give them the tools. It seems like you have a really good idea here. Are there any other companies doing a similar sort of thing? Look, there's a lot of things out there, but I haven't found a genuine competitor to us at the moment. I've not found anyone really who's talking about mental health in that age bracket of four to eight. Um, There's apps for mindfulness and parents, but in my opinion, they're more about connecting parents and getting to talk about meeting up and finding friends and these sorts of things, which are brilliant. Um, And there's obviously mindfulness apps and things like this, but they're all, all targeted at the adult, at the user where we parent is, is genuinely unique is it's giving parents those skills to get in at that really early age of, of four to eight um, and build that positive mental health. So, no, I, I can honestly say I don't think we genuinely have any competitors at the moment. Is that the case? I didn't expect that, considering how much of a difference you can make in that age group. Is it similar in Australia, or do they have a different system? It was quite similar until 13 years ago when a major structural change was made in the Australian system. In Australia, we have an organisation called Medicare. They're kind of similar to the NHS, although they don't run the hospitals, they run the private practices. So when you go to your GP in the UK, and that just goes straight, that's billed to the NHS in Australia, that would be billed to Medicare. That was the system, and mental health was run similarly to how it is in the UK, where it was run by local government, and there was initiatives and programmes and these sorts of things. It wasn't done centrally. And in Australia, it really wasn't working. The federal government commissioned a study and they looked for options and the correct option was to privatise it and that was the option they went for. What that meant was that psychologists could see a client and bill directly to the government um, under the same structure as GPs. So they basically elevated the level of a psychologist to the same as the family doctor. You do need a referral from your family doctor so the, the family doctor GP is still the first port of call in Australia. It's still the, the central control, um, I guess, over the purse strings as well as directing people yeah. to it. But what it's meant is that everyone in Australia can have access now with this referral to 10 sessions of psychology per annum. Have um, you seen improvements then because of that? Absolutely, absolutely. It's cost a lot of money, um, but it has made incredible improvements to Australia's mental health. We've been involved in this system there for 13 years the overall mental health of Australia has improved drastically because of the acceptance and the accessibility to psychology has it's literally night and day there was a recent study commissioned by Theresa May called Thriving at Work which looked at the leading examples globally of mental health and Australia was amongst three countries that were recommended to adopt their model I believe the others were Germany and perhaps Holland. 
All right. Is that something that the UK government's looking to do then? Well, they had a report done. Right. So I'm not sure where where that report sits at the moment. But uh, as I said, I'm not a political animal. But uh, for me, the information is there. I think the results speak for themselves. And I would encourage the government to uh, proceed down that path. I think it really has showed that spending money on mental health in its early stages has produced an incredible saving later down the line. And I I truly believe that if we invest in positive mental health significantly, we can reduce the effect of poor mental health and mental illness on society enormously. Wow. Well, thank you very much for coming. I've really enjoyed speaking to you about this. How can people get in touch with you? What's your website, Twitter details? Sure. So um, find us on the internet, so weparent.co.uk. Um, on Facebook, it's at weparentuk, um, and Twitter is at weparentuk as well. So please come and join us. Perfect. Great. Thank you very much. Cheers. That was Nick Tustin, everyone. So just to reiterate, you can find out all about the company on Twitter at WeParentUK, on Facebook, WeParentUK, and their website, www.weparent.co.uk. You can also follow me on Twitter at FascinatePod. Uh, Just to let you know what's coming up next, I'll be talking to a performance psychologist. After that, I speak to an expert on primate conservation. She knows everything there is to know about gibbons, and I'll be going all the way to Wales to see a couple who've just brought out a brand new book called The Seven Pretty Simple Principles of Weight Loss. So thank you to my guest Nick, and a thank you to Laura James for providing the music for this podcast from her song Rooftops. Go check her out on Spotify, she's absolutely brilliant, she's got such a good voice. Cheers guys, see ya! See ya!